Hey y'all, Rick Houston here, and I want to tell you about my new show, the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast. I've partnered up with the state of North Carolina Department of Natural and Cultural Resources to help uncover the history behind moonshining mountain boys, professional wheelmen, and the backwoods and city lights of the Tar Heel State. In the first episode, I sat down with Winston Kelly at the NASCAR Hall of Fame for a little behind-the-scenes gossip about Junior Johnson's engineering skills. He's got two things in his hand, pipe wrench and channel lock pliers, and they weren't new. They had been been around the block a time or two. What's the first deal they built, I bet? No, no, you know, I think they were, the the pliers had been red before, but paint had worn off. And in the second episode, I talked to a professional hillbilly, a.k.a. Dr. Daniel Pierce of UNC Asheville, to find out the real history of moonshiners and their battles with the revenuers. He wrote about one of his experience of trying to chase down this uh, this bootlegger and this this souped up car, and he he complained that the government gave him these piece of crap, cheapo cars, and that, that were really no match. But he thought he was doing pretty good, and then the guy just hits it and just takes off and practically disappears. But then the guy makes a bootleg turn uh, and comes back towards him. And as he said, it was a game of chicken, and I was the chicken. And so he ran off the road. And actually, he was the guy who who caught Junior Johnson at his daddy's steal when Junior got tangled up in a a barbed wire fence. So check out the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast, available on YouTube, DailyDownForce.com, and all of your favorite podcasting platforms. And be sure to check out my regular show on NASCAR history, the Scene Vault Podcast. Hey there, NASCAR fans. Have you got your copy of the latest edition of NASCAR Pole Position Print Magazine? If not, there's no better time than now to subscribe at PolePositionMag.com. NASCAR Pole Position is the only print magazine covering NASCAR. Officially licensed by NASCAR, NASCAR Pole Position Magazine is published throughout the NASCAR season, and each edition is an instant collector's item backed with great feature stories and photography. The magazine is even mailed to you in a poly bag for those who love to collect NASCAR memorabilia. At PolePositionMag.com, you can even find past issues available to purchase. Get your subscription to NASCAR Pole Position and get great NASCAR content delivered straight to your mailbox throughout the season. Learn more at PolePositionMag.com. That's PolePositionMag.com. Eric Estep here. One of my favorite parts of being a NASCAR fan is collecting diecasts. It's how I got my start on YouTube, actually. To me, a room is not complete until it features shelves of NASCAR diecast cars. It's as good a time as ever to continue your collection or begin an all-new one by pre-ordering your favorite driver's 2022 next-gen diecast at LionelRacing.com or at any authorized Lionel retailer. Lionel is the official diecast of NASCAR, and don't miss Lionel Racing's NASCAR Authentics diecasts at a Walmart or Target near you. Not only is Lionel the official diecast of NASCAR, but they're also official supporters of the Out of the Groove Podcast Network. So what are you waiting for? Head to LionelRacing.com to order your favorite driver's 2022 diecast. Hello, my name is Rick Houston, and welcome to the Scene Vault Podcast, your source for all things NASCAR history. Presented by QWare. Maintain excellence. 
James didn't know anything about quitting time. You might be out there till 12, 1, 2 o'clock in the morning. It's whatever it took. You just had to get the car ready. It's hard to describe the feeling you get when you go to Victor Circle for the first time. I was nobody on the crew. After we got to Victor Circle at Daytona, I came home and my dad actually took me around to his buddies and introduced me. The day NASCAR and all of us associated in any way with NASCAR forget its past, that's the day we don't have any future. Hello, I'm Steve Wade. And my name is Rick Houston, and welcome to the Scene Vault Podcast, presented by QWare. And Steve, how about that Chase Elliott? <laughs> that really something, isn't it? Good we, grief. Well, you know, I, I just think it was cool because obviously his mom, Cindy, uh, worked for us way back when. I didn't get a chance to work with her. She left and married Bill before I came on board. But it's kind of neat to see that scene, even now, has that kind of connection to the sport. Yeah, I think it is pretty cool. And I credit Chase for having a great year. He, he earned this championship. Nobody gave him anything. And I think it was very cool to see him hug his father when that race was over and he had won that championship. You know, as you know, Bill won the championship in 1988. And this is yet another father-son pair in NASCAR winning championships, joining up with the Petties and the Jarrett's. Now, you were telling me before we started recording that you do have a Chase Elliott story. Yeah, it's not your usual Chase Elliott at the track type story. I think several years ago, there was a circuit that allowed a lot of these young drivers to come in and get their licks at stock cars. And they had a race at Rockingham. Well, my buddy and I, Tom Higgins, decided to go on down because we always enjoyed Rockingham. And we found that the sons a lot of prominent NASCAR figures were going to race that day, including Chase Elliott, uh, a Robert Presley's boy, Coleman, I think his name is, Junior Johnson's son, I think was in it too. So we thought we'd go down and t- check that out. Now, I was in the garage area, and I ran into Bill, who was standing with Cindy and Chase. And Cindy introduced me to Chase, who was about, I don't know, maybe 15? I don't know, he was, was that young. And uh, Cindy said, she looked at Chase, and then she looked at me and pointed to me and said, he was my boss. And I looked down at Chase, and I looked him square in the eye, and I said, son, I was never her boss. (laughs) 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 It was about the truth. (laughs) Cindy ran that photo department so well, I didn't have to worry about a darn thing. Steve, this week in our first segment, we are going to share the first of a two-part interview with Cliff Champion. We sat down with Cliff a couple of weeks ago at the North Carolina Auto Racing Hall of Fame in Mooresville, and some of the things that he said, I just felt like were life-changing for somebody out there, and we did release a special episode of the podcast a couple of weeks ago where Cliff talked about his suicide attempts, and I was completely blown away by how transparent he was and, and the reaction to that episode has been incredible. And it, the episode was maybe 10 minutes long, 15 minutes long, but somebody commented that they love our podcast every week in general, but they also said that we will never release a more important episode than that. And again, as I said on that show, I just felt like somebody out there needed to hear it. And I'm not trying to preach. I'm not trying to get on a pedestal. I'm not trying to get in the pulpit or anything like that. 
I just thought that if it touches just one person, then I think the decision that you and I made to release that part of the interview early was well worth it. Absolutely. I hate, I've known Cliff a lot of years and I never knew this about him. I never knew what he went through in this particular situation. And when he talked about it, I came to the realization that just like you, Rick, if this reaches one person, just one person's been well worth it. And I think by the reaction we've gotten from the fans, we did the right thing. I knew that he was a man of faith. I had seen him at motor racing outreach and I'd seen some tweets and some posts on Facebook, but I like you, I had no idea that anything like that had happened. So listeners, if you haven't had a chance to listen to that, go back and check that one out in particular. I don't say that very often, but yeah, that was a very, very powerful episode. Now, all that being said, in this week's installment of the interview with Cliff, he talks about getting into the sport with his cousin, Bill Champion, and working with Ricky Rudd, and then going to work for James Hilton and Richard Childress, and then winning the Daytona 500 with Rainier Racing and Buddy Baker. Cliff Champion got around. <laughs> sure did. <laughs> you know, he, he had a long career in racing. What's remarkable about it is that unlike most successful mechanics who find their tenure with one team to last a long time. Cliff didn't do that. For him to be in the sport so many years as he was and go from team to team just proves that he was a valuable asset to each team he went to. Steve, then in our second segment, we are going to go back to the June 16th, 1983 issue of Grand National Scene. <laughs> and I was, I was having trouble coming up with an issue of the week. So I said, what the heck? And I tweeted our friend Kathleen McDonald at KHI fan on Twitter. And I asked her to give me a random date from the late 1970s to some point in the early 2000s. And the scene closest to the date that she gave me would be our issue of the week. And she responded with June 16th, 1983. And there was, in fact, an issue dated that very date. How about that? <laughs> now, I sent her a private message to ask if there was any special significance to that date. And Steve, it was her 21st birthday. <laughs> well, you don't forget your 21st because when you're 21, you get to do things legally. You couldn't do it <laughs> earlier. <laughs> well, I'm not telling tales on Kathleen, but she said that she couldn't really remember the day. All right. Now (laughs) I'm going to give her the benefit of the doubt. And I'm just going to say that it was because that was 37 years ago. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, that's the story that we will go with. So Kathleen, again, thank you so much for all the support that you have been to this podcast. Thank you for the encouragement that you gave me during my summer walks and everything. You'll never know how much some of those videos that you tweeted me meant to me and you don't know how much I appreciated that. So Kathleen, thank you for your input on this episode. And Steve, the cool thing about it is the fact that the issue that she came up with was incredible. I mean, there was stuff basically on every page that we could talk about in this issue. There's coverage of Bobby Allison's third straight win at Pocono. And this one, he pretty much dominated. And Steve, you have a pretty interesting column on the relationship between Richard Childress and his driver at that time, Ricky Rudd. And then 
there is an awesome photo of Larry McReynolds getting ready for a pit stop. <laughs> I know the photo you're talking about. It is indeed awesome, but at the same time, somewhat dangerous. This week, we have new Patreon support from Andrew Higginbotham. So, Andrew, thank you. Thank you for getting on board. Thank you for becoming a part of the family. Thank you for becoming a part of the team that makes this podcast possible. Without the support that we get on Patreon and without the support that we get on PayPal, uh, this podcast would not be possible. So please, if you can, support us on Patreon, support us on PayPal, support QWare, and support Brian Kelp. They have been an important part of the team for a long time, and they will never know how much that backing has meant to me. So if you can help us out on a monthly basis, you can do that at patreon.com slash the scene vault podcast. Or if you would prefer just to do a one-time show of support, you can do that at paypal.me slash the scene vault podcast. How did you get into racing? Now, somehow, reason or another, I want to say you were friends with the Rudds or something close to that? Yeah, my dad knew Ricky's dad. Oh, okay. And business yeah. and stuff. And uh, when I got my driver's license, Ricky's dad had built Ricky's brother, AJ, <laughs> a dune buggy, a fiberglass dune buggy. He was actually, Ricky's brother, AJ, was actually working after school in a fiberglass place. And he, they had all the moles, and he actually ran the chopper gun building boats and dune buggy bodies. So he had built his own. Yeah. So uh, my dad went ahead and we got one, and I built one for myself. And then AJ and I just got to be like best buddies then, and we were inseparable all through then. And then uh, I believe it was in 74. It was July 74, and AJ came to, we was working, both working at the dad's junkyard out there at Alrod Auto Parts. And uh, Ricky was driving a delivery truck, and, uh, and me sometimes right there but anyway aj says i want to go to daytona watch the race i said man i said that's that's like watching paint dry i said, i ain't going to watch no race i said uh, <laughs> he said well, i really would like to go i said man that that's boring sitting stand. i can't sit in the stands for no four or five or three four hours something like that i said i'll go if we can get in the pits or something but i ain't gonna go just sit in no stands he said well call your cousin and see if he can get you in so i called uh bill champion and uh yeah yeah i'll get you in so we got down there and started watching him work on the car and stuff like that. He got us right in the garage. Because you know, back then, he only had, like, one guy with him. And uh, we're working around. And after watching him a while, finally, I came over, and I was like, uh, this guy was adjusting the valves on the motor. And I said, Bill, I said, I ain't trying to be a smart butt or nothing. I said, that guy adjusting the valves don't know what he's doing. I said, you going to blow the motor up. <laughs> he's like, well, do you know how to do it? I go, well, yeah. Well, he told that guy, get out of the way. Let him in there. So I adjusted the valves, and then... Uh, he was going to get Jim Hurtabees. He brought him over there to try and qualify the car to get him in the race. And Jim was in the car the next day, and he went to back out of the garage, and they used to run before they came up with all these Heim joints and universal joints in the steering. He had one of those old rubber biscuits, one of those rag joints, they call them, back like out of a streetcar is all they were. And he went to back out of the garage, and that thing turned, and it broke in two, and the steering wheel spun around in his hand. Well, he's lucky it happened there. <laughs> <laughs> so hey, yeah. he's like, man, they were just standing there looking at each other. And AJ and I are like, well, do you got one to replace it? Yeah, I got one in the truck. So we ran over and grabbed it and replaced it. And we got back to the motel that night. And uh, Bill offered me a job 
I'll be darned. So I just started racing, and I, like, I was working at the junkyard, and I was making $125 a week working at the junkyard. So was AJ back then in Ricky now, is this in Virginia this is up in Virginia okay what yep. part we all grew up uh, we all grew up around uh, Chesapeake Virginia Beach area okay yeah. right. right there I'm from there yeah so. yep so uh, we did that and next thing you know AJ he was coming on the weekends and coming at nighttime sometimes helped me pack the barons and doing everything because it was only me and Bill when we were there that day at Daytona they made the race and heard of bees ran just a couple of laps and Bill was one of the first guys that had the small block the 351 from Bud Moore. Right. He had one, and it, it uh, busted a cylinder wall a couple laps in the race. So we get back, and I am just started working there, and he goes, well, got to build a motor. I got a block coming in tomorrow, and everything. So here I am. I'm a motor builder, which I, I had built some drag motors and stuff, but just street stuff. And I'm yeah, not really, yeah. I wasn't really a, a race motor builder, but I was now. <laughs> you know, just all of a sudden like that. I mean, I was bearing packer, motor builder, you know, truck loader, truck driver. <laughs> You know how it is when you work for independence back then. Yeah. Now, how long did you stay with Bill? Um, that started in July. I stayed with him through that year. And then the next year, uh, Ricky's dad and I was talking to him into letting Ricky drive the car. They actually took the car over to Langley Field, his old Mercury that he had, the 71 Mercury. And AJ drove it and Ricky drove it. And Ricky drove it. They drove just about the same. And Ricky might have been just a couple of thousandths faster than AJ. But... Ricky was just like that. Ricky always had that natural-born talent. AJ could drive as good as him, but he had to get there to do it. Where Ricky, he'd run fast right off the bat. Yeah. So uh, they went ahead and let Ricky drive the car the next year. So I stayed there most of 75 with him. So what was it like for you being a young guy at that time and working for a young guy who was young in his racing career? Well, we didn't really look at it that way. I mean, we had already all grown up with each other, so we were just friends, you know. And it's like one one time I was eating at a restaurant here on the lake, and uh, Ricky and I were eating lunch. And I had my boat behind Midtown, my, my big charter boat that I ran, and my phone rang, and some guy wanted to know if I had a date available. I said, well, I'll be right back. And I ran down the boat to get my planner to see if I had the day available. And I'm coming back. And the waiter comes over. He says, Cliff, he said, I can't believe you just left Ricky Rudd sitting there like that. I said, he did done the same thing to me. You know? <laughs> I mean, we're your friend. You know, it's just Ricky to me. You, are, you know, it's like everybody else, you know, like Richard Petty or somebody is, they're a big giant. And to us that worked in the industry, they're just, it's just Richard. Yeah. You know, yeah. and just Ricky and stuff like that. What all did you do for the Ruds? I mean, we. We were uh, jack of all trades, like a world with Bill. Well, yeah, I mean, because I was the only one that really had experience in there. Uh, so I was, I was packing all the wheel bearings and doing everything. And um, they had Ray Fox was building the motors down here, and we'd had a little motor trouble, and uh, we decided to bring them home and build them ourselves. And I was already keeping the whole car up and everything. So I wrote down, I took a piece of paper and wrote down on there, you know, I wanted like. Uh, Three and a half thousandths clearance on the rod bearings and four thousandths on the mains, and I wanted eighteen thousandths ring gap, end gap on the rings and stuff like that. I went in and handed it to AJ and said, "Here, you build." I said, "I can't do it all. You got to build the motors." So then he built the motors, and I did the rest of the car. How about that? <laughs> and Ricky helped out where he could. You know? Now you mentioned seventy four. You worked for Bill. Mm-hmm. Seventy five. 
Ricky was yeah. running the car. And you, you mentioned that you stayed there most of 75 or through 75. Yeah. What happened then? Um, we had we we were running at a race. We had a had a trouble with a valve. had a had a bent valve or something like that, and had to replace it. And Ricky's dad, which I guess he was supplying money, probably buying tires, you know, through the junkyard, was sponsoring a little bit. And uh, Bill went and got a valve instead of getting a racing valve. He needed it quick and and cheap, so he just went down to the dealership and bought a valve. And him and Val, him and him and Ricky's dad had a big argument about it and everything. Well, they got oh, wow. out there and <laughs> Ricky, they dropped a valve during the race at Atlanta. Uh-huh. So Alvin was so mad and everything. That was it. So he just pulled out, and uh, that was the end of him driving. So I went and got a job for James Hilton. Then that's when I started with James right there. And it's funny because I was when I went to work for James, I was living in a little trailer beside the shop, right there, and actually. One time, me and Kurt Shelmerdine were living in this little trailer beside the shop. It was probably about an 18, 20-foot trailer with one living on one end and one living on the other. So, that's the experience working for James. Yeah, I was going to ask you, <laughs> what kind of a boss was he? He was a great boss. I thought so. But it, just, uh, it was a never-ending job with James. I mean, he, would, he, he built all the motors, and uh, myself and all the volunteer guys around town kept the car up. But James didn't know anything about quitting time. I mean, you had to be at work at 8 o'clock the next morning, <laughs> but you might be out there till 12, 1, 2 o'clock in the morning. It's whatever it took. You just had to get the car ready. You know, and sometimes you only had a couple yeah. of days to turn, because back then you only had one or two cars. If you're lucky if you had two cars. So we would wreck a car. We wrecked a car at Talladega and drove straight from there to Banjo Shop. Had to put a front clip on. It's when he T-boned Marty Robbins. The only race we didn't finish that year. We finished third in the points. And that's the only race we didn't finish is when he T-boned Marty right there. I think Marty wrecked or spun or something and came down and James T-boned him right there. And the Talladega car, we had to run it the next weekend in Bristol. Which is nowadays unheard of. You know, you're not going <laughs> to run your Bristol car and your Talladega car. Yeah, are yeah, long right. ways apart. They're a little different from each other. And uh, we went there and worked around the clock for two or three days. I mean, we'd be working in Banjo shop, and all his guys, everybody's sitting there working, and, and you'd be in there working, and you needed a part of the truck, and you'd grab the flashlight and walk outside, and the sun's up. It's the middle of the day. You know, you just lose track of days because we worked at least two days straight, but we made it the next weekend. We were at, at uh, Bristol with that same – I mean, it was Nashville. Now, we, were, we were there with that same car. Yeah, that kind yeah. of workload might make a fellow think about moving yeah. on. Well, it did. When you're young and dumb, it yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And, you know, you and you – and, I guess I got to say I, I never was a real big race fan, but I was a I loved working on them and I loved the people and stuff. So I enjoyed working on them. So good thing, or yeah. I'd probably quit. <laughs> did you now? Help the chronology here. Did you shift over to Richard Childress after James, or not? Um, yeah, I came and uh, and worked for Richard in '77. Uh, I worked for Richard, and I left the middle of the season. Ricky and them were running for Rookie of the Year, and uh, they they needed some help. So uh, I quit about halfway through the season. Right there in June, I think it was, when Richard came back from Riverside. He had gone out to race out there, and, and I quit when he I left when he came back and went back to work for Ricky and them to help him get through the Rookie of the Year deal. Now, we know what Richard Childress Racing eventually became. Yeah. 1977, when you went to work there, 
What was Richard Childress Racing like at that point? Oh, it was a, a little shop on Walltown Street. And uh, <laughs> just a bunch of volunteer guys, you know, just a small shop. We had a box truck and a uh, open trailer behind us, like most of the guys did back in Cecil Gordon. That's what everybody had was a box truck back then and an open trailer back there. But, uh, you know, he's mostly volunteer help. I mean, he, he had his own motor room, so he was ahead of a lot of the guys. He had actually mechanics that built the motor for him and stuff instead of like James built his own. But then there was a lot of guys around town that volunteered. Mm-hmm. And actually, uh, Patterson. And Patterson, he works for Pat Patterson works for him now. Still works for him. And he was working, he was volunteer help, would come in the shop, help at night. And uh, there was a local policeman around there. And I can't remember these guys' names for anything. But uh, he would come in. He'd be on duty. And he'd drive by the shop. And he'd come in there. And uh, we might need a hand cutting a, a piece of rod or something for a window net or something like that. And you, he's over in there with his guns and his uniform on. And he's over at the vice cutting metal. You know, just anybody come by, you just jump in and help. You know, whatever it took to get the job done. Wow. I did not become involved in the sport until the late 80s. The impression that I always got of the NASCAR in the mid-70s, early 80s, was it was almost like the wild, wild west. It, it was kind of everybody did their thing, and they were having a good time on the road. And it was, it was I don't want to say a free-for-all, but it, it, was a, it was a good time. It was a great time. I mean, it was actually wilder before then. I mean, when I came into it, it was actually toning down some, <laughs> you know, because it was, it was yeah, starting yeah. to get known, and you couldn't do the things you used to do. I mean, I heard all the stories you know, everybody's heard all the stories with Curtis Turner and all those guys back in the day and stuff. And I know my cousin Bill, they were staying at the Thunderbird mm-hmm. Motel there in Darlington. Darlington. And a couple of drivers went over and knocked on his door and talked him into, they drug him down the motel somewhere. And while he was down, a couple more went in there and they had one of those sprinklers out in the yard that goes back and forth that waters your yard. They stuck it in his room. It was out there where they were watering the lawn. They stuck it in his room. <laughs> and he came back, and I mean, the bed was soaking wet. All his clothes were soaking wet. Everything in the whole room, walls, ceiling, everything was soaking wet in that room. But they were all a bunch of jokesters. But Everybody did back then. And yeah. like I said, it was wilder, you know, like I said, before that, because they would, uh, I mean, you, you'd hear where G.C. Spencer, he always had a pistol stuck under the seat of the race car even when he's on there, because those guys used to have bill collectors or used to have people come to them. You know, they knew they was at the racetrack, and they'd confront them right there. Yeah. Well, they, they kept a gun in the car with them. Two or three of them did that. <laughs> so the days before that were really the Wild West, and it, yeah. it still was a, a sort of a free-for-all when we were there. I really enjoyed the part of it because, I mean, at 21, 22 years old, you know, when, uh, when Ricky and them started, I mean, who, who would have thought that some kids that young, and Ricky was three years younger. Ricky's brother and I, AJ, were the same age. And Ricky was three years younger than us. And he just give us cash and a credit card or whatever and a truck and trailer, and we'd go to California. We'd, we'd go all over the country like that couple 20-year-old kids. You know, and now that I'm married and, and have some them kids that were in their 20s, I don't hardly trust them to go to Seven Eleven. You know? <laughs> I can imagine going across country with it like that. Yeah, just here you go. Wow. Well, in '78, you were still a, a back to shoulders thing, or uh, yeah, because you were listed as a screw chief, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Is that how you, is that how you got well, it, could, back? It, it could have been. It could. Well, let's see. It could have been seventy eight. I tell you, I, I have a hard time remembering right. the years right there because I went back to Hilton at one time. Yeah. And then then I went to Richard, yeah, but uh, I don't say how because in '77 he won the crew, he won the Rookie of the Year. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it could have been right along there. Yeah, you're listed as the crew chief yeah. in '78. '78, okay. Now, I know '79. I went to work for Grant Adcox. Yeah. And ran that season with him. Yeah. Now in '78 with Richard, uh, did he get you lure you back by saying? You'll be my crew chief, or did no? Did, I mean, you just went. Yeah. I, Tim Brewer had just left, ah, and he needed somebody to fill that slot, so he hired me to do that. Now I know that Richard Childress and James Hilton they were they were pretty tight, yeah. as as yeah. fellow independents. Was it almost a deal where Richard needed some help, so you went and helped him, and then James needed some help, and you went. Um, no, I was in between. Uh, I guess I had, had left, uh, Ricky and them where, you know, money got tight or whatever things happened and you left and went, you know, cause they were going to maybe, they weren't going to, you know, run some or something like that. And I needed a job. So I went over and I'd, I'd go back to James or something. And uh, the second time I went back to James is when, uh, Kurt Shelmerdine was there and he and I shared that little trailer. Yeah. Okay. But at one time, the first time I think I lived in James's house right there as Evelyn used to uh, she'd cook me breakfast and stuff like that and her hanging out was a real plus <laughs> I actually have home cooked meals now I have always heard that RC and James had had a bit of a relationship where they would kind of pick at each other a little bit all the time all what's, the time. what's your what's your best James Hilton RC picking on each other's story well I know one, but I can't tell her. Exactly. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to think. We talked about it on the podcast. <laughs> really the only best one that I know I can't tell. You know, it, uh, we, we, uh, the short of it, we had both headed to uh, California. That's the one. We were going to California and had both gone the uh, middle route, going across 40. And uh, everybody had left out at separate times and it kind of passed through the same towns. And, uh, I mean, didn't even know where the other person was. And we had stopped in El Paso and got a burger or something. And when we came out on the ramp, here he came right up beside us. I mean, you could have timed it if you had tried. <laughs> Pulled right up beside us coming yeah. off the ramp right there in El Paso. <laughs> but those, those two were something else. You know, they used, to, uh, they used to lock each other in the back of the trailer when they had the driver's meeting. You know, back then you didn't get fined <laughs> for missing the driver's meeting and stuff. You just missed the driver's meeting. And uh, that's why they had to. That's why they had to start finding stuff, making them show up. <laughs> but uh, they would catch them in there changing clothes or doing something, and they they padlock the back door, lock them in the trailer, something <laughs> like that, you know. Well, you went to work for Grant Edcox, and there were yep. others. I went to work for Grant Edcox, and when I got there, he had sent. He had a car, and he had it switched over to an Oldsmobile. So when they were changing over to the yeah. down, down, changing the cars, and. Uh, he called me, and it was only about four or five days before he had to go to Daytona. And he had just gotten the car back from Hall and Moody. They had changed the roll cage over, put the sheet metal on it for an Oldsmobile. And he needed me to get the car ready to go to Daytona. Right. So I got there, and the motor was sitting over here and everything, and all he had was, like, two volunteer guys. And we had, like, three or four days just to get this car together, set up for Daytona, and get to Daytona. And uh, we ended up working... We worked around the clock for uh, it's either two or three days 
getting that car ready to go and then got in the truck and drove to uh drove to daytona hmm. to race down there and actually one of uh ricky's uh ricky rudd one of the boys he went to school with uh, uh joel stewart he came down and uh, helped me get the car ready and helped us drive and stuff to daytona hmm. but that was something and we we qualified uh real well down there i think he was getting motors from uh waddell or somebody and we qualified like uh I think they were on the pole. I think Waddell and them were on the pole, and uh, we qualified about fourth or something like that, really? or fourth or sixth. It was somewhere in the top top six, I believe. It might have been fourth. Really? We know what happened with Grant yeah. in Atlanta. Yeah. So that's all that a lot of people tend to know yeah. these days. If, if they know of Grant Adcox, they yeah. know what happened. Right. Who was the Grant Adcox that you knew? Oh, great guy! One of the, one of the best guys you'd ever want to meet. Yeah, uh, just fun to be around. Uh, he was the life of the party. You when you came around, he had everybody laughing, carrying on. You know, there was a, a local band, uh, Bill McCauley and the Bluegrass Express, that were <laughs> friends of his, and he put their name on the back of the car for free. You know, just yeah. stuck it across yeah. the back of the spoiler back there. So we'd go, you know, during the week we'd go down. They'd be playing at the local local saloon down there or something we go down there and get a couple pictures of beer and listen to them guys play but grant was right in there with you now his dad and everybody his whole family was just super nice people some of the nicest people you'd ever want to meet right there i i really miss grant you know like i said he was a great guy to be around well, fun during, to be this, during this period of time we're talking from like 77 78 all yeah. the way up through the early 80s yeah you talked about the uh, huge amount of work yeah. You guys did, and you did it because you loved it. But at the same time, I don't want you to take this the wrong way. Were you making any money? Did you have? No, no. I was going to say, what was your biggest paycheck? Well. If you want to tell me. They, back to like Ricky. When Ricky started, we actually started racing. Mm-hmm. We might I might have only been making 95 or $100 a week when we were actually working in the junkyard, in the That's salvage yard. That's what you paid me when I started. <laughs> <laughs> and then when we started racing, we were working day and night. Yeah. And AJ and I both made $125 a week, and Alvin said he was going to pay Ricky $150 because he was driving the car. He was taking the chances and everything driving the car. So the driver got $150 a week, and we got $125. Now, I think I worked for the same thing for Childress and stuff. And then when Grant, at the end of 79, uh, his dad said they had to cut back and they were going to sit out of racing for a while. So I came back well, I didn't come back home. Actually, we'd been getting our motors from Waddell, like I said, with Grant. So Grant talked to Waddell and told him what was going on, and he told him that I, I was leaving. So Waddell actually hired me right there at the end of the season. So I went to work for Waddell for uh, $15,000 a year, huh. which wasn't a whole lot. It no. was still about 100, maybe 150, 125, still about the same thing right there. And uh, I did that. Now, is that when he was at Rainier? Yeah, he was at Renew okay. with Buddy Baker driving. Right, and right. like I came over there. That car was a missile. Hmm. I left at the end of the year. Matter of fact, I uh, had a van, and uh, I I worked till 11 o'clock that night getting Grant's stuff all together in there hang for him. Went home and packed everything in the van and left about 6 o'clock in the morning and headed for Charlotte to work for Waddell. And I called him along the way, and he said, well, we're, we're leaving for Thanksgiving right now, and he'll just be back Monday. <laughs> so I stopped, just happened to know a girl that lived 
in Atlanta. She used to live over by Grant. <laughs> she had moved to Atlanta, so I stopped and spent the night with her and uh, some friends in Atlanta. Went to a Harry Chapin concert. I'll be done. That night, yep. And he, he passed away, I believe, the next year is when yeah. he was in his wreck, passed away. But anyway, uh, did that and started working for him then. Right there, the very first race we go to, we won the Daytona 500. And that was the first thing, you know, with CBS with the cameras and everything. Right, and right. we were pitted right below the camera stand right there. Well, I'm sitting I'm a young kid. I'm still in my 20s right there, mid-20s by then. And uh, Ricky's brother, AJ, calls me up. He says, hey, I seen you, on, seen you out there on pit road. He said, you done there changing the front tire. I said, well, how'd you know it was me? He said, I could tell by that ball spot on the back of your head. <laughs> I go, what ball spot? I didn't know I had no ball spot. <laughs> well, the TV, you know, with the sunlight shining through yeah, it, you yeah. could see right down through it. First time I ever learned I had a ball spot right there, <laughs> which it ain't a little ball spot no more. <laughs> what was it like after working for James Hilton and Richard Childress and Granddad Cox and all of a sudden, you do find yourself in victory lane for the Daytona 500. What was that like? That was, it's hard to describe the feeling you get when you, when you go to victory circle for the first time. I mean, I was nobody on the crew. I was a tire changer, but I mean, at the shop, I was just one of the mechanics. I was nobody. And uh, still, it was a big thrill right there. And... A lot of people don't realize, you know, when you're when you're going to Victor Circle, if you see some of the pictures from back then, and somebody just had it on Facebook the other day, is you know Victor Circle at Daytona is a little hard to get to. You kind of got to know how to get there. You're kind of going through the fences and through the sand, and you're pushing the car through sand down through there. And we make it through one fence. Well, buddy, he's got, you know, you got a hundred people crowded around the car, and the crowd you're trying to make it up through there, and he can't see because everybody's all around the car right there. So I'm pushing on the A pillar right there by the windshield. I got my arm in there, and I'm driving the car up through there while buddy you know, were running up through there and Waddell was right in front of me pushing on the front fender well somewhere in that sand Waddell tripped uh -oh. and when he did it looked like a centipede we just all the way he went and we spit him out the back the whole line of people <laughs> down the side of that car just walked over top of Waddell you, you can't stop <laughs> and I was holding on the wheel I couldn't let go so uh, he went down and everybody like that it was just a big hump going down through there and he spit him out the back and he got up run on back up there but that was that was really something you know, my dad, probably like most kids, I mean, he he didn't really promote racing because my dad sponsored Bill at the local, uh, at Moyoc. They had the dog track down there, and he actually went down and helped him change it into a racetrack and everything. He owned a fence company and helped him do a lot of that work. But uh, it was something, you know, seeing all that and doing all that. To go from that, my dad, like I said, he didn't support it a whole lot because he saw from what he did with Bill that... There was no money in racing. He said, we're paying $50 a tire and having to put new tires on the car. And if you win, you won 75. He said, so I could see it was a money losing proposition. So he really discouraged me the whole time uh -huh. with racing and stuff right there. And after we got to Victor Circle at Daytona, I came home and my dad actually took me around to his buddies and introduced me. Really? You know, his guy, his best friend then had a hot dog stand. He, yes, yeah, my son Cliff. Yeah, they just won Daytona and stuff like that. And it, it was like I was accepted because he he pretty much, you know, like you'll never amount to anything, you know, as long as you're doing this and everything. Wow. And it finally did right That's there. That's And I was lucky that he was at Charlotte when uh, with Benny Parson. We won the pole there. And uh, we won the little truck and the Broncos and stuff like that. And he got to, he was there when we took the picture and did all that. So it was, it turned out good in the end. 
having been with the independent teams, more than likely you weren't going to win. You go to Rainier Racing, you win the Daytona 500. Did it become a deal where after that you expected to win every race? You wanted to. You know, it just depends. I mean, sometimes you don't always have a choice with the team you're with. You know, it's uh, being a crew chief can be a a blessing and a curse. Yeah. Because there's only 40 openings for a crew chief in the industry. Yeah. And when those 40 are full, you're the odd man out. Right. Where if you're a crew person, there's thousands of those out there every week. Somebody can always fill in, but you can't, you know, a crew chief's not going to say, hey, come in, why don't you just come take my job? Right. You know, so it changes things a little bit. But you do you do want to win. You know, you try to. You do the best you can at it. But uh, at the same time, you have to be realistic in your expectations. Steve, you really kind of championed having Cliff on the show. <laughs> See what I did there? Oh no! Wasn't that good? <laughs> no, you know I spent time coming up with that. <laughs> well, you you were the one who kind of set that up, okay? I'll buy that, but uh, still. <laughs> <laughs> How long had you known him, and what made you think that he would be a good? guest for us here. On well, the- I had known him since the late seventies. And the reason I thought it'd be a good guest is because he was all over the place in racing. And I, I knew that he had a lot of experiences to tell us about. And the other thing I knew about him was that, okay, he, he's not a hall of fame candidate or anything like that, but based on Twitter and Facebook, there are a heck of a lot of fans who knew who cliff champion was. And I thought it'd be great to have him share his experiences with us. Well, Steve, that was kind of where I was coming from. I knew who Cliff Champion was. I was familiar with his career to a certain extent. I was friends with him on Facebook, but I can't say that I knew a lot about him or his career. Steve, I don't want to say that I put you off or anything like that, but it's not an interview that at first I was really all that enthusiastic about. Right. But from the time that we sat down and I hit record, I was completely blown away by his friendliness, by his recall of details, by his sincerity. And so I'm going to be honest with you, before the whole special episode thing came out and his story about his suicide attempts, I was blown away before that ever happened. And so, Steve, I guess what I'm trying to say, I want you to know that it pains me to say this. But, Steve, you were right. <laughs> <laughs> that pained you? Can you repeat that, please? <laughs> Steve, well, I, you I were knew, right. <laughs> <laughs> I knew Cliff had a lot of experiences in racing. I didn't even remember what they were. Uh, so I said, well, if he can just tell us about it, it should make for a great podcast. And that's exactly what he did. Well, Steve, you are from the same general area as Cliff and Ricky Rudd. Are you from Chesapeake? No, I'm from Virginia Beach. Actually, I lived in the Norfolk, Virginia Beach area from 1961 all the way through when I graduated from college. So I'd been there at least a dozen years or so. And uh, what that Tidewater area is, is a combination of cities. 
all around the Chesapeake Bay and the Atlantic coast. Uh, Newport News, Hampton, Portsmouth, Virginia Beach, Norfolk, Chesapeake. And Ricky was from Chesapeake, which is south of Virginia Beach. And at one time, Chesapeake was nothing but, it looked like to me, a bunch of woods. I mean, (laughs) but obviously it grew to be a very impressive city at this point. Well, Steve, we will talk about Ricky Rudd a little bit more in our second segment. But what do you remember about Ricky in those early days of his career? He looked like a kid. Of course, we'll talk about that a little bit more later on. But he looked like a kid. Well, I had to pay him pretty close attention because I was working in Roanoke at the time. And this was a Virginia driver trying to make it in what was then Grand National Racing. So I got to know him pretty quick. And I came to realize that it was a family operation that got him into the sport and was maintaining it in those early years. And that's where Cliff came in, working for that family uh, operation. He's best friends with Ricky's brother, AJ. So it was a natural for him to be there. Another intriguing part about this interview was Cliff's viewpoint on the relationship between James Hilton and Richard Childress. Now, Steve, I know that you knew both of them pretty well because uh, you had a a pretty close relationship with some of the independent drivers and had gotten some really good stories about them. Tell me about the dynamic between James and Richard, because we know Richard today as a six-time Winston Cup champion. We know him as Pop Pop, the grandfather of Ty and Austin, and we know him as the very successful team owner. But there was a time when he was a Jimmy Means in the sport. He was right. a James Hilton in the sport where he was basically just making it race to race and doing the very best that he could with equipment that wasn't exactly competitive. Tell me about the relationship between James and Richard. Well, they were both on the same level when it came to race. Number one, they had their own teams, their own stuff. They had very little money to operate with. So they were one of a group, a big group of what were called independent drivers in those days. The word independent meaning they did not have factory support, which is true. Now, I think a bond was made among these guys who were all in the same vein. But James and Richard were just a bit closer, I think, than most. And as much as they were serious when it came to racing, when it came to the relationship they had, (laughs) that was anything but serious. They were always pulling jokes on one another, always pulling some kind of stunt. I'm talking about dead fish of the seat of the car, uh, saltpeter in a drinking water. (laughs) Real. (laughs) And uh, several other things. But as much fun as those guys had, they still had to race and they still had to race each other. So they worked together and they played together. Steve, when I asked Cliff about his best story about RC and James, he, he kind of thought for a second and he said, well, I can't tell you the best story. And then he said it had to do with a trip out West where Richards and James's trucks kind of met in the middle, but he couldn't give any specifics. So Cliff notes version. Steve, you sounded like you were familiar with this story. Uh, Cliff Notes version for a family-oriented podcast. What was the deal? Okay, let me see if I can give you a Cliff Notes 
version of this. Hey, thing. Cliff Notes. I, I about didn't even that. put that together. <laughs> <laughs> I really championed that sentence. Uh, I'm anyway. on fire, man. <laughs> <laughs> Both of those drivers took the same route to get to the west. And so it was Richard who left first. Now, on the way out there to California, on this route, he stopped. And he had a message put up on the side of a, a mountain, a cliff, whatever you want to call it right there, big letters. And he knew that Hilton would see that when he came by. And he was laughing about it. Well, sure enough, James drove by, and sure enough, he saw the message. And let's put it this way. I, I can't tell you what the message said. <laughs> but to everybody else who was on that road that day saw that message about James Hilton. And you can just imagine <laughs> the steam coming out of the hill in the ear. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> oh man. Okay. Now I gotta figure out what the sign said. All right. We better move on before we get ourselves in big trouble. Uh, we have talked several times about the 1980 Daytona 500 here on the podcast. We talked with Lauren Rainier about his reaction to the win and his dad being the team owner. We talked with Waddell Wilson, who was the crew chief for that team. But I love Cliff's perspective because he was literally the new kid on the block and he was visiting Victory Lane for the very first time. And the crew, they were trying to push the car through the crowd into Victory Lane. And we all know the images of what it was like at that time. The crew was probably laying all over the car, sitting on the hood, sitting on the deck lid or whatever. But they're pushing the car through the crowd and the crew is literally falling all over themselves <laughs> yeah. trying to push Buddy's car into victory lane. So that was a cool image, but I would also imagine that nobody was getting upset about that. They had just won the Daytona 500, and yeah, they might have been stumbling over each other, but that was probably the very best stumble that they had ever made. Well, certainly was a great moment for Cliff because here he is in victory lane with a driver like Buddy Baker, and he comes from a background in which he started out with a family-owned team and then basically after that spent years working for the independent drivers. Then he's in victory lane with a big-name driver and a pretty darn good team. I'd say that was quite an accomplishment for him. Steve, the story that I loved most in this segment of the interview with Cliff was about how Cliff's dad had tried to discourage his racing career. And, you know, I, I never, obviously I never met Cliff's dad, but being a father myself, I can imagine where his dad sure. might've been coming from. There's absolutely no solidity, shall we say, in, in going and racing none whatsoever. You're, you're taking a big gamble. Well, my dad had the very same conversation with me when I was planning to move to North Carolina and get into racing. He basically told me, he said, listen, there are only so many spots available for people to cover the sport. And so I'm worried that you're making a mistake. Well, and he told me that, and I'm going to be honest with you. I kind of use that as fuel. I, can I, imagine. I said, yeah. I'm, I'm not necessarily going to, I didn't necessarily say I'm going to prove my dad wrong. But uh, also, I think it made me a little more determined. 
to find well i think it did too and determination means a lot if you're trying to make a career in racing i've been telling this to up-and-coming journalists for years don't quit if you yeah. want to get in this sport be prepared to take some hits but don't quit you're gonna have to start low somewhere you're not going to go to any major network or be assigned to the Daytona 500 by the New York Times. You know, take what you can get and build from there. A lot of the younger journalists, Rick, that we see today did just that. The cool thing about the relationship between Cliff and his dad was after he won the Daytona 500 with Rainier Racing and Buddy Baker, Cliff went home and his dad was introducing him to all of his buddies. <laughs> how about that? <laughs> now that was, yeah. That's yeah. Cool. I don't care how much that race paid for Cliff. Uh, I would imagine that that right there meant far yeah. more than any financial reward. Absolutely. That was really a shining moment for Cliff. Steve, what did your dad think of your career? In racing? <laughs> well, I think my dad was really pleased when I got out of college and found a job. <laughs> <laughs> But he I didn't care out, where you were. He just I started out in newspapers. Work. Yeah. Uh, I started out in newspapers. I started small at Martinsville. And uh, I was a sports writer, but I was very fortunate to be introduced to NASCAR, of course, through Martinsville Speedway and the people that worked at Martinsville Speedway. So I got a good dose of NASCAR my first year as a newspaper man. And I was able to take that and get a job at a bigger paper in Roanoke. When I got the job in Roanoke, I was on my way. I mean, I had initially planned to go to law school and, in fact, was accepted in a school of Baltimore. And when I got the job in Roanoke and covered uh, Virginia basketball and Virginia Tech basketball and uh, went to Atlanta to see a race, I called up the law school and said, forget it. I'm not coming. I know what I want to do. So that said... My dad followed everything I wrote for the rest of his life. Well, Steve, I'm going to be honest with you. I, I had kind of that same experience with my dad after he had kind of, he didn't really discourage me, but he wasn't exactly enthusiastic about my move to North Carolina. Once I did make it to Winston Cup scene, one of the greatest weekends that I ever had was in Nashville. And I love going to Nashville anyway because it was my hometown. But my dad, went to the race and I had him on the radio and everything. And so he was able to listen in to us chatting back and forth and, and all that kind of thing. And so I thought that that was just a really cool experience. And just like it was with Cliff and his dad and you and your dad, I was able to share that with my dad. That's great. That's great. Listeners, follow Brian Kelb on Instagram and Twitter at Speedway Screens and check out his inventory at SpeedwayTSJ.Etsy.com. Steve, this week, with it being championship week at Phoenix, Brian posted everything. He posted (laughs) Dale Earnhardt t-shirts, Jeff Gordon t-shirts. He posted an Alan Kowicki victory lane cap. An Alan Kowicki victory lane cap. I'm telling you, where does he find this So it's just, uh, listen, I know it sounds like a broken record, but we say it every week. It is absolutely stunning. The stuff that Brian is able to come up with and make it available to his customers. So 
he has an amazing inventory and you can check that out on Instagram and Twitter at Speedway Screens. And you can check out his inventory at speedwaytsj.etsy.com. If I'm not mistaken, Steve, it being the end of the season, I believe he's offering a 15% discount. Yeah, I saw that. He's uh, putting everything out there on special sale. Take advantage of it. All right, Kathleen, it is time for your issue of the week. (laughs) (laughs) We are going to go back to the June 16th, 1983 issue of Grand National Scene. Bobby Allison led the Van Scoy Diamond Mine 500 eight times for a total of 143 laps. Now, Steve, that is one of the more unique race sponsorships that was ever in NASCAR, the Van Scoy Diamond Mine. I don't even know where that is. So, yeah, I believe actually one of the prizes that Bobby won was a diamond ring. I'm pretty sure it was. Bobby took the lead for good on lap 156, and he wound up beating Darrell Waltrip to the finish line by 9.56 seconds. Fuel mileage was an issue in this race. Richard Petty finished third, but would probably have been even higher if he hadn't run out of gas while coming in for a late race pit stop. Tim Richmond also ran out of fuel before taking fourth and Benny Parsons was fifth. Both Tim and Benny were a lap down at the end. Bobby said after the race that he had never been as comfortable on a team as he was with Diegard. Bobby said they are much easier to work with and I'm really able to concentrate on racing. I think that's good for me and I didn't hear any funny noises on the last laps or anything. We pitted several laps before anyone else and we had good gas mileage. Robert Yates worked a lot on fuel specialties, such as how much gas it takes to produce each horsepower the engine puts out. Plus, a lot of guys don't get all the gas out of the gas tank. At that particular time, Diehard was a high-quality team, and you have to figure that any team that has Robert Yates as it's any builder, it's going to be a darn good one. And yes, indeed, Robert Yates contributed much to Bobby winning that race because of the fuel mileage. Well, this is 1983. Correct. And at the end of the year, Bobby goes on to win the Winston Cup Championship, his first and only title That's right. with Dygard. That's right. He said more than once that Dygard was a good fit for him. Of course, we know Dygard's history. And there were several drivers before Bobby who would have never said that at all. But in this particular year, everything worked well at Dygard and everything worked well with Bobby Allison being there. And it resulted in a championship. Well, I think that was kind of the trend with Dygard. Darrell Waltrip had some of the best success of his career, certainly the first true success of his career before it fell off the table, the relationship fell off the table or whatever. And then the same thing I think happened with Bobby. He had the first and only championship of his career with Die Guard, but then he and crew chief Gary Nelson kind of went their separate ways and had some disagreements. And that's when Gary went to work on the R&D car with Greg Sachs and Bobby got mad about it and left the team and whatever. But at the time of this issue, Bobby is on top of the world with Die Guard. They are clicking. Absolutely clicking. Now, this race was held a week to the day after the birth of Bobby and Judy's granddaughter, Clifford's daughter, Leslie Kay. And he was a 
proud grandpapa. He said, I've got a picture of her outside if anyone wants to come take a look. (laughs) (laughs) Steve, the Our Opinion column took on comments that had been made by Joseph Cloutier, who was at the time the president of Indianapolis Motor Speedway. And Joe essentially said that as long as he was president of Indianapolis Motor Speedway, there would be no Winston Cup event held there. He said that Indy could not afford to stage a quote-unquote small event that could not match the Indy 500 or even any of its qualifying days. So he was throwing a little bit of shade on old NASCAR there, wasn't he? (laughs) That's right. (laughs) There were a bunch of IndyCar fans who had no use for NASCAR. Said those guys down there doing nothing but racing taxi cabs. It ain't real racing. He was one of them. Well, Mr. Cloutier said, if the people want to come and see a race at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, they have to do it one day a year. Yeah, he was definitely an IndyCar guy and didn't have much use for the rednecks down south. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. And Steve, he evidently held firm to that. His final tenure, evidently he served a couple of different tenures as president at Indianapolis Motor Speedway, but his final tenure ended in 1989, and that was three years before Indy held a tire test for Winston Cup cars there and five years before the inaugural Brickyard 400. Now, Steve, you know what? Here's the deal. Yes, I'm a stock car guy. I'm a NASCAR guy. I have never, ever in my life been to an IndyCar event. But there is a part of me that kind of respects his opinion, at least a little bit, because I don't like change either. Yeah. I am a traditionalist. I am a purist. And Indy at that time had always ran open-wheel cars. They had never had another event there other than the Indianapolis 500. And for many, 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 many years, that's the way that it was. That's right. But when NASCAR popularity surged in the early 90s and so forth, I think at that time, Tony George, who was in charge of the Speedway, saw the light. What good sense it would make to have NASCAR have an event at Indianapolis, particularly when it was riding this wave of popularity. Rick, as you and everybody else knows, when they had an inaugural Brickyard 400 at the track with NASCAR, huge. It was a huge event. Steve, you had a column in this issue on Richard Childress and Ricky Rudd, and I believe, if I'm not mistaken, they had just won their very first race. It was the first win for both Richard Childress and the first win for Ricky Rudd. They had, right. uh, Ricky went to victory lane at Riverside. And your column, <laughs> what's the best way to put this? Your column was epic. Ah, I like that. Epic. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm not just saying that to suck up because I don't have to do that anymore. <laughs> but this was not planned. The date of the issue that Kathleen mentioned was completely random. But after talking to Cliff Champion about his time with Richard Childress, this issue carried your column about some of the hoorays that RC had for himself once upon a time. And rather than summarize this bad boy, let's just go with a couple of paragraphs about Richard Childress. All right. So this is verbatim from your column. (laughs) There are some Richard Childress tales out there, many of which can't be told because the statute of limitations hasn't expired. 
but some of the milder ones center around his efforts to buy 200 leather pocketbooks in Mexico. Don't ask. <laughs> Whizzing through various downtown areas in the team rig and tending to a stricken Atlanta rider in a Michigan hospital during a cross-country trip through Texas, California, and back east. After enduring a few days of Childress's escapades, the rider thought he had suffered a heart attack. So did the doctors until tests proved otherwise. All right. So okay. I've got so many questions. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how many of them can be answered. <laughs> What's the deal with the pocketbooks? <laughs> uh, no comment. <laughs> All right. Who was the Atlanta rider? Uh, the statute of limitations has passed. Okay. Was that hidden? Okay. Never mind. That was all well and good. But then there is this tidbit. All right. The only mark Childress carries as a reminder of days gone by is a lengthy scar on his neck. Ironically, he didn't get it from a barroom brawl or pit road confrontation. Some weirdo sliced him in the men's room during a New Year's Eve party. Childress dispatched the guy accordingly. <laughs> yeah. Now, Steve, I don't even know where to go on that one. <laughs> All right? So just, what happened? I don't know why the guy wanted to take a chunk out of Richard, but when he did that in Richard's neck, instead of uh, falling down or running away, Childress just let that guy know who was the boss. <laughs> and of the two of them, that guy spent more time in the hospital than Richard ever did. <laughs> so is that where the whole hold my watch thing came from? <laughs> <laughs> Could have been. <laughs> Steve, in essence, you were basically pointing out in your column that Richard had been around the block a time or two, as opposed to his driver at the time, Ricky Rudd. Now, here's what you wrote about Ricky. When Rudd first broke into Grand National Racing, he was the ultimate in baby-faced kids. Instead of racing 3,700-pound stock cars, he looked like he should be riding a tricycle. <laughs> <laughs> the press box wags had a field day with the boy. To wit, they proclaimed, he looks like he ought to be burped. <laughs> Is that his crew chief or his babysitter? <laughs> Is this race a part of driver's ed? Will he be in the sixth grade next year? Hey, it's rookie Ricky Rudd, or is it Ricky Rookie Rudd? <laughs> <laughs> and what was Ricky's reaction to all this hazing? Once, after an individual expressed amazement that the cute kid was a driver and not a member of the high school debate team, Rudd menacingly muttered, just put him in a car with me just for a couple of laughs. <laughs> it was a lot of fun. Hey, Ricky Rudd. It was a lot of fun to make fun of Ricky back then, but I tell you what, he was a he was a tough kid, uh, a strong competitor. I talked to him uh, uh, several times. In fact, I was the one that told him that a lot of these stories that were going along in the press box, what the guys were saying up there, and uh, he he laughed about it. He thought it was pretty cool. You know, this is a kid though. When he was a kid and not just a baby faced driver, he and his friends would do things like climb on the roof of a two or even a three-story house that wasn't completed yet is under construction. And that, you know, when you see a construction of a home, you can usually see a big sand pile 
that's uh, uh, you know at the at the house, and Ricky would take his friends and they would tie towels around their necks so they look like Superman and dive off of that second or third floor <laughs> into that sand pile. Man, that, no mama's boy does that. I can assure you. <laughs> Well, I think it was funny that you made fun of the fresh-faced driver in this column when he would eventually come to be known as Rooster. Yeah. He didn't come by that nickname Ooh. by accident. Oh. <laughs> well, Steve, this issue features Mike Hembry's story about an upcoming reunion for those who had raced on the beach and road course. Now, in Winston Cup scene, we didn't mention the beach and road course every week. <laughs> <laughs> no. And so for this issue to be picked out, basically the day after we interviewed Paul Goldsmith, uh, the connections are just crazy. Uh, absolutely. I would bet back then in, what, 83, an upcoming reunion, I would bet that Paul Goldsmith was at that reunion. Our interview with him, I'm telling you, he told so many great stories. And one thing I want the listeners to know, they can hear those great stories. and They will probably notice something. As long as we have done this podcast, we've not called anybody Mr. So-and-so throughout the podcast. <laughs> but out of respect to Mr. Goldsmith, that's exactly what we did. The man is 95 years old and still very much sharp as a tech. 95 years old. That's right. What was it like to go to high school with him? <laughs> uh, okay, Rick. <laughs> You can't fire me. <laughs> no. <laughs> Darn it. <laughs> there was also a story in this issue by Gary McCready on Bruce Hill, Sam Summers, and Skip Manning. And these were three drivers who had shown some promise in the Winston Cup ranks, only to eventually find themselves, for a lack of a better way of putting it, on the outside looking in. Well, many of us in the media thought these three guys would lead the next wave of top-notch Winston Cup drivers coming in, along, along with Jackie Rogers at the, at the time. As it turned out, as you mentioned, they eventually ended up on the outside looking in, and that is an indication of how tough it can be to make it in a Winston Cup race. Bruce Hill won the 1975 Rookie of the Year title, but in each of the next several years, saw his starts kind of dwindle, and after running five races in 1981, he called it quits. He opened a body shop in Union City, Georgia, which is a suburb of Atlanta. And Bruce said in Gary's story, we ran some short track races last year and did pretty good, but I've had no time for it this year. My business is going so well that I'm really trying to concentrate on it right now. I don't think there's anybody who ran Winston Cup who had to get out that doesn't miss it. I miss it, but I don't have the money myself. I'm not going to run if I'm not going to be competitive. I don't like to go racing if it's just to make the field. Skip Manning, and we have actually discussed Skip Manning on the show before yeah. when we talked to Terry Labonte. Skip Manning drove for Billy Hagen before Hagen hired Terry. And Skip said in this story, my biggest problem in Grand National Racing was that I took Billy at his word. He told me that if I stayed with him, I'd have a job for life. I tried to meticulously build a team when I should have been building myself up like Neil Bonnet and Dale Earnhardt did. There are two approaches. 
You either work for the company or you look out for yourself. Most athletes do that. My whole time in Grand National was spent as a crew chief and manager. I even drove the truck. I had two men working for me, and I tried to do everything. I remember that the least amount of pressure on me was when I buckled my seatbelts and went racing for two or three hours. Well, Skip's case was uh, perhaps a bit unique. He had that job with Billy Hagan. Billy told him the job would be secure, but what he was doing at the start was nothing like driving. He wasn't doing much driving at all. He was working for the team. And as he said, not having the time to get out on the track and show what you can really do really hurt his chances to advance. A lot of old-time race fans would remember MC Anderson, the team owner. Yeah. And they identify him as owning teams that Kel Yarbrough drove for, Benny Parsons drove for. But I did not realize until I read this story that he actually broke into the Winston Cup ranks with Sam Summers yeah, as his driver. Did. And Sam finished second in the 1977 rookie battle to Ricky Rudd. But just prior to Atlanta, MC told him that he was going to be let go in favor of Buddy Baker. Now, Sam continued to race local and regional races, but in 1982, his nine-year-old son, Christopher, fell out of a pickup truck and spent 65 days in the hospital. And that was kind of the breaking point for yeah. Sam's racing career. Christopher did eventually recover, according to his story, but Sam kind of went in a different direction. And he went to work as an assistant superintendent at a sheet metal company in Waynesboro, Georgia, in addition to owning a service station slash laundromat slash mini mart food store. Well, you can understand Sam's position. Uh, first of all, uh, you know, if MC gets a driver like Buddy Baker, well, he's got to think very strongly about letting him come on board. Baker was a name. Baker was a winner. Baker could bring a lot of good things to the team. So Sam got pushed aside. Now I think Sam had a chance to come back in Winston Cup racing, but with the injury to his son, Christopher, his attention was taken away from that as it should have been. He needed to stay and make sure that his son got well. Sam said, in this story, I got MC involved in racing, and I believe he more or less felt he could be an overnight success. But at the time, we only had two or three men working on the car and didn't even have a shop. Then the next season, he probably spent a half million dollars, and the following year, it was two million. I talked to some people after leaving MC's team, but they didn't have enough money to run a good team. They were good enough people, but I would rather not race if I can't do it right now, Steve, I thought it was interesting that there was a common thread through each of those three drivers. If they couldn't afford to race and race well, they didn't want to race at all. You're exactly right. That is exactly what makes all three of them much the same. Bruce and, and uh, Sam and Skip all went by the same, shall we say, rules, personal rules. I am. I love racing, but I'm not going to race if I don't have the money to be competitive. That's exactly what they did, too. They didn't come back because they did not think the money was there for them to be competitive. And that's one of the things I love about doing this podcast, because it doesn't matter 
if you are a seven-time Winston Cup champion or a multi-time race winner or somebody at the back of the garage, there is pride throughout that garage. Exactly right. And that pride comes out in the interviews that we do. You're 100% right. You know, even with the drivers who did not win races, they survived. And they survived largely because of their will to race. They raced the way they had to race. But other guys, if they couldn't race, they felt they needed to race. And the way they needed to race, they didn't hang around. This issue also features a standalone photo. uh, And that means that there was no story connected to it. It was just the photo that told the story. And what a story this was. (laughs) This photo was in the scene on the circuit section. And it featured Larry McReynolds getting ready for a pit stop. And baby boy has the spare lug nuts for this pit stop in his mouth. (laughs) His cheeks are puffed out like a chipmunk. (laughs) Now, the racer in me understands what he was doing. If a lug nut falls off during the pit stop, he can just spit out the spare lug nut and put it on and not lose that much time. But the dad in me, what would have happened if Larry Mack had swallowed I lug nut. <laughs> exactly. I mean, if someone who was not in racing took a look at that picture, their first question would be, what the hell is wrong with that guy? <laughs> Second would be, why is he doing this? <laughs> what was it? The episode of MASH where Klinger tried to eat a Jeep? <laughs> I guess that's what Larry Mack was doing. He was eating a race car. <laughs> Steve, finally. There was a press release that ran in the scene on the circuit section that said that Charlie Baker would be racing at Dover in that track's great American truck racing event on June 19th, the Gator event that was immortalized in Smokey and the Bandit 2. (laughs) (laughs) And these were big rigs, cabs that were racing. Yeah, I saw a couple of those races. I'm telling you the truth. You've never seen a scarier sight than when you see one of those big rigs flip over in a turn and roll down the hill slowly. I mean, wow. it's, it's it's pretty stunning. So you actually saw a, a race or two of that series? Sure. Atlanta and uh, Rockingham, and I actually covered the Wyfringham one for the AP. Herman wow. Hickman, who was a PR man at the time, needed somebody to to file it for the AP. And uh, I said, sure, I'll come on down and help you out. And that's where I saw uh, that first truck race. And I'm telling you, it was kind of fun. The thing that I liked, when those guys finished the race, every single one of them lined up along the front straightaway, got out of their trucks, came down and waved to the fans who were loud to go in the track and visit with them. I thought that was pretty cool. Well, Charlie Baker, he ran a total of 12 Winston Cup races between 1982 and 1990. And his best finishes in Winston Cup were a couple of 18th place finishes. So, you know, he didn't exactly make it at the Winston Cup level. But in big rig racing, he was Richard Petty. (laughs) (laughs) he won basically everything that there was to win in that division. And the thing is there aren't any records much to go on. 
And there's actually a great American truck racing group on Facebook. And I got on there and I posted to see if there were any stats I could get on Charlie or whatever. And there weren't any to speak of. Basically one guy said that Charlie won whatever race that he was in. Basically, Mm -hmm. certainly he was going to be competitive and he was going to be the truck to beat. Charlie qualified a truck at Texas world speedway in 1982 at 132 miles an hour, Steve. Yeah, and for a vehicle that heavy, that's haul on the mail. I'll tell you that. You would have thought that Henry Benfield was driving it. <laughs> no, Henry Benfield only drove 132 miles an hour going through Atlanta from Talladega back to <laughs> North Carolina on Interstate 75 and 85. <laughs> Now, I was not able to quite get where Charlie wound up finishing in the Dover event. I think somebody on Facebook said that he didn't have that great a day. He had brake troubles and finished fifth. Hmm. So you're pretty doggone good if you have an off day and you still finish fifth. That's saying a lot about how good you really are. Hey, I'm Jeff Burton, and you're listening to the Scene Vault Podcast. Listeners, if you could, if you are a Patreon supporter or a PayPal supporter, or if you're not quite able to do that yet, you can still help us out. And you can do that by leaving us a five-star rating over on iTunes or any of the platforms that you listen to the podcast on. Leave us a positive rating and also write us a written review. People pay attention to that. And it's not about us getting a pat on the back. That's how a lot of people, including myself, decide whether or not to listen to a podcast. They read the reviews to see if it's any good and they click on it and they hopefully become a fan. Follow us on iTunes, write us a review, give us a five-star rating, subscribe on YouTube. Steve, over on YouTube, you know, we're nowhere near Jarrett Lundberg numbers, the iceberg. We're nowhere near Danny B talks. We're nowhere near certainly Eric Estep or slap shoes or NASCAR man or whatever. But the positive that I take out of what we're doing on YouTube is that we are growing and we're growing every single month to the tune of about 200 subscribers every month. So that's looking positive. So if you can't help us out financially, that's fine. We understand, but you can support us by leaving the reviews, by subscribing on YouTube, by doing whatever you can to get the word out about what we're trying to do. So thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. And do it, do it. We'll consider you champions. I don't know anything about the sport. The only thing that I know about hockey is Wayne Gretzky. Yeah. I I know uh, Gordie Howe. I know Bobby Orr. And I know Pierre Hamill.